Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who knows how important immigration has been to Silicon Valley, unlike the current administration. But in my spare time, I'm just a reporter, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power change and the people you need to know around tech and beyond. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Jason DeParle, a reporter at The New York Times who writes often about immigration and poverty. His most recent book draws on three decades of reporting following the experience of how one woman born in the Philippines leaves everything behind to restart her life in Galveston, Texas. The book is called A Good Provider is One Who Leaves, One Family and Migration in the 21st Century. Jason, welcome to Recode Decode. Thank you. I want to talk about you a little bit first of how you got to this book, because you've been, I've been a huge fan of your reporting in the New York Times for a long time. But why don't we talk about how you moved to this topic and why you wrote this book over many decades, which I, that's what's the most interesting part of it, that you're following the long story. Yeah, three decades ago, I had a fellowship to live in Manila. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, I went there with an interest not in migration, but in um, slum life and poverty in the developing world. Mm -hmm. I wanted to move into a shanty town and found a family that was willing to take me and when I got there, I realized that the way they survived was through migration. Right. The father was a guest worker in Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. The mother was home raising five kids on the money he sent back. Um, I stayed with the family for about eight months, and we became close friends. And you friends. lived with them. Yeah, well, I did. Can I just, let me back up just a little. No, why you did go, you want to do that? talk more about that, huh? Why did you do that? Why? Because I picked tech, for example. But what, what made you I pick I had been that? writing about poverty in the United States for—the reason I became, I became a journalist because I was interested in poverty. I was interested in poverty before I was interested in journalism. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd been a reporter for about four years, and I was um, wondering whether I wanted to continue in journalism or do something that was more active, like— become a doctor or a social worker or a lawyer. Mm -hmm. So I took a sabbatical and went to work in the developing world. Mm -hmm. Um, I went to work for a group that was building slum housing, but it was run by an eccentric nun who had me locked up in the office uh, writing uh, grant proposals for her. I wasn't meeting Mm -hmm. any people. So I went out and found another nun who lived in this slum area and said I wanted to find a family to move in with. I was Mm -hmm. hoping to get a more intense— So you uh, wanted to see what— what you're ta- if you're going to fix something, you need to understand what the problems are. Presumably. Exactly. I wanted to move in and have a have a up close experience of what conditions in Shantytown were like. Mm-hmm. And so you did this. Tell us about that. <laughs> well, the funny part about it is, I went to see this nun, and she tried to discourage me from doing it. Mm-hmm. As she said, um, uh, Americans need toilets. Most homes in the Shantytown didn't have them. The family would think uh, they needed to cook me special food. I would be a burden on them. 
Um, and she went on and she denounced American military bases in the Philippines, American corporations. And she waved her hand above her head and said, that's all up here. We need to build one-on-one -on -one relationships between the first world and the third world. If you come back, I'll see what I could do. So I mm -hmm. thought she had changed her mind. Right. I came back two days later thinking she would have used this time in between to find a family that was willing to have me. Mm -hmm. Instead, she grabbed me and took me into the alleys and essentially auctioned me off on the spot to the first person <laughs> she saw. Which yeah. you know, I knew just enough Tagalog to know that, she was, that the woman was horrified. And No, sister, it's not Pindi Puede, it's not possible, sister. Yeah. Second woman had the same reaction. The third woman was struck mute. That was Tita, the woman <laughs> I ended up moving in with. Mm -hmm. At this point, Sister Christine is done with this subject and stomps away and says, if you don't want him, pass him on to somebody else. And mm -hmm. he, she left me there to work out the, the deals with T, the, the, the details with Tita. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So, so talk about that experience. Well, you imagine um, a, a shaggy-headed, bushy-bearded young American arrives at your doorstep and says, I want to just move in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, there was no template, you know? There was no... Um, I didn't have a job. I wasn't there to do anything. Mm -hmm. um, I was there to observe. Um, so it was pretty awkward at, at first. Um, what, what broke the ice between me and Tita was she gave me a job, an assignment. Um, she was gluing newspapers into paper bags, mm -hmm. and I, I messed it up so badly. She told me she threatened to mark them made in USA. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, she had a good, one, one of the things I loved about Tita, she had a great sense of humor. Uh -huh, um, she uh -huh. didn't take herself too seriously. What was she me. doing with the bags? She was making... Sister Christine had this slum empowerment group mm -hmm. that, um, among the things it did, was distribute um, rice and eggs. And uh, she was, and Tita was one of the managers of the co-op store. Mm -hmm. She Part of her job was she had to bring in 2,000 eggs a week and shelter them in her kitchen under a fluorescent light to keep the rats from eating them. Right. Um, okay. Uh, so T Tita was the, the steward of the eggs. Uh, mm -hmm. I just thought it was a great metaphor for the fragility of Philippine democracy mm -hmm. and for her own fragile and hopes who, who for her family. who was running the Philippines? Was it Aquino? This was right after um, uh, Marcos had been deposed, and so right, Aquino so had come in. Sister Christine, the nun, was a friend of Cory Aquino's and mm -hmm. on the commission writing the new Philippine constitution. She was mm -hmm. quite a prominent figure in the mm -hmm. Philippines. Uh, right. But she had sworn off her wealth and moved into the shantytown. Right. And what is it—you know, it's very Margaret Mead of you to do this, but what was the <laughs> idea of that you would see what their life was like to do what? What was your goal? I don't really know. I mean, it's a—I um, don't know what I was looking for. Um, uh, uh, I don't know what I expected to find, but what I found was an encounter with Grace. Mm -hmm. Tita lived under crushing conditions, but she hadn't been crushed. She mm -hmm. had sustained— um, a strong faith and an, uh, an inquisitive curiosity and a great warmth towards me, a stranger who had arrived at her doorstep. I, mm -hmm. I found her character and her resilience to be really inspiring. And I think it shaped my subsequent career as a reporter on American poverty, mm -hmm. um, where the question is, why are people unable to take advantage of opportunity in a society where it seemingly abounds? Mm -hmm. And Tita's life had been one about how did people find opportunity in a place where it hadn't existed. And, right. Um, it encouraged me to sort of not just ask about the material conditions of people's lives, but to sort of seek out the, the inner narrative, the inner spirit. I mean, Tita had this rich prayer life, this rich sense of what her life's mission was. It, it made her less a poor person and more of a person. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Which I think is difficult for a lot of people. I mean, across any anywhere you find it, one of the—I uh, was walking in, in D.C. today, and there was a sign about not insulting homeless people. It was interesting. It was a picture of a homeless person saying, stop calling me names, or something like that. It was fascinating. And I remember thinking, 
you know, the the way we treat homeless people, I hadn't thought of that, like thought of that concept because I don't do that. But of course, this is how we look at homelessness. We'll get to homeless people here and, and that idea. But you— well, Let me uh, tell you one really okay, sure. Um, sure. Uh, uh, interesting experience I had. Well, went, so one night um, for dinner with Tita and her group of uh, colleagues in this um, slum improvement group, and we were walking back, and we walked by the Sheridan Hotel, mm-hmm. the window, the dining room, where you see these warm chandeliers bathing the white linen tables, and the women— started laughing and teasing me that I could go in and have mm-hmm. dinner there, but right. I couldn't walk in with them. That they were, Whether I was paying or it wasn't the money, it was just they wouldn't be allowed. allowed. And mm-hmm. what was special about the moment is that for a fleeting second, the whole idea of class division seemed sort of absurd. It was like mm-hmm. the joke was on them. The joke was on the shared and the joke was on um, these artificial divisions that keep us apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it was a, a really nice moment of feeling accepted by these these mm-hmm. people, and that's what was so special about Tita. I think in the end is that we crossed a gender divide, a class divide, a nationality divide, and had something that I think is a real, true friendship that exists mm-hmm. to this day. So you did this thirty and, years and, and, later. So you did this and wanted to do it just for the experience to understand. Right to under. To I didn't work. go in. Because I was going with a work product. I wasn't right. going to go in. wasn't going to write Taking an article notes. to right. write a book. To um, Sister Christine wouldn't give me a job. She said, "Go in, and if the people will give you a job, if they have a job for you." So I, right. I just became the guy. Right. And what did you do? Sitting there, I took the kids to school. I took them to the zoo. I helped Tita glue paper bags. I um I was I, I just sort of became a member of the household, and eventually started taking notes. I mean, mm-hmm. that's kind of what made me realize. For better or worse, I'm a journalist. Like mm-hmm. somebody else might have gone in there and said, we need a clinic and started the clinic. You know, if right. The pre-med person would have done that. But right. I found that in the end what I was interested in was Tita's life story and taking it, writing it down. So right. that's what it, in the All end right, I so did. Tell, talk about the development to this book, to, to getting to it. So we became friends, like mm-hmm. real friends. Mm-hmm. You know, And we stayed in touch for many, many years. Mm-hmm. And over that time, Tita had five kids. All five kids grew up to become overseas workers just like their father. So this mm-hmm. migration situation had started as a emergency situation while the Philippine economy was in the dregs and while right. his life was in crisis because one of the kids had a— congenital heart defect, and Emmett went abroad to make the money for, for you know, what started as an act of desperation became a way of life right. for this family. Which is quite common. There's, It's actually quite much more common. It's actually very common in Silicon Valley where people do that. Um, the Wall Street Journal one year wrote a wonderful piece about a brother who stayed back in the village and one who went to Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. uh, ended up being a coder and everything else. And what it was meant to show was that the one who came to Silicon Valley wasn't necessarily the happy one, or didn't have a happier life. It was it mm. was fa- it was just it was mm-hmm. just observational. The entire thing it was just fascinating. But talk about this idea of migration of moving for jobs because it's so common and that happens in you know either whether it's going to Saudi Arabia or Silicon Valley or wherever people go. The light bulb moment for me when I really understood the importance of migration globally was mm-hmm. when I discovered that remittances, the money that migrants mm-hmm. send back to their families, is three times the world's foreign aid budgets combined. Indeed. Yeah. I mean, I had been thinking at the New York Times about doing a beat on global poverty. And I mm-hmm. kind of figured it would be a beat about right about foreign aid pro- pro- programs. Mm-hmm. But really, the migration beat is the poverty beat. I mean, migration was the world's le- biggest mm-hmm. um, anti-poverty program. So I had known it played a profound role in the life of this family. But mm-hmm. when I was realizing its global impact was when I saw that their 
their story was the story of the world writ large. Right, right, absolutely. With, with these companies, actually, we'll get into the tech of it later because there's all the kinds of companies trying to deal with moving money around the, mm-hmm. the globe, especially mm-hmm. at a cheap rate because a lot of a lot of it's usury. You know, people are mm-hmm. taking advantage of people when it's quite easy now to do this in a different way. But we'll get to that in a minute. So you stay with them and then – so this is a book that you've been writing for 30 years then, Well, yeah, it didn't start as a book. I mean, right. it started as a book in my mind. I went back in 2006, so mm-hmm. 20 years after I had left. And you had been covering – what did you do in the interim? Uh, I covered American poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, wrote a book about the welfare system, mm-hmm. covered poverty for the New York Times for 20 years. Right. And stayed in touch but didn't see them for 20 years. And I went back to write a piece for the New York Times magazine, and that's when I discovered – um, the sweep of migration globally and the importance mm-hmm. of remittances. So, out of that article in two thousand appeared in two thousand seven, I decided to do the book. Mm-hmm. So it was maybe twelve years once I, twelve years of consciously writing the book, and twenty years right. before that of right. taking notes and keep right. keeping notes and keeping letters. And they were great letter writers. Uh-huh. Um, so I have. I, my mom recently died, and I found mm-hmm. in her house letters that Tita mm-hmm. had written to my mother, just oh, assuring wow. her that I was okay and. Uh-huh. Um, reaching out to her as a mother-to-mother. Mother. Mother. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. So when you – in that interim when you were writing about poverty in America, because I think it's – income inequality is just to me the, one of the more important issues right now that needs to be dealt with. Um, there's obviously enormous money being made by, in tech. There's enormous money being made all over the place. Talk a little bit about the experience of covering poverty in this country because it's, it's an issue I try to get tech people to focus on quite a bit, and it's quite hard uh, to focus them on it, but because I think it's integral to how we're going to problems that are going to occur later. Well, I was interested in poverty before I was interested in journalism. I right. spent the summer in India during my senior year of college. When I came back, I wrote a story for the campus paper, and that's kind of what got me being a journalist. Mm-hmm. So poverty was always the main reason why I wanted to be a journalist. And when the New York Times offered me a chance to cover poverty, it's like being asked yeah. to play a center fielder for the yeah. for the Yankees. Yeah. They um, it was a great opportunity. They just let me go wherever I wanted and write whatever I wanted. Um, uh, I wrote stories about Native Alaskans and stories on Indian reservations. But the bulk of the beat back then, when I first started in the late 80s, early 90s, um, was around the uh, what we now call the underclass. Mm-hmm. William Julius Wilson, the Harvard sociologist, had written a groundbreaking book called The Truly Disadvantaged that had brought new attention to long-term um, – intergenerational poverty. And then Mm -hmm. Bill Clinton promised to end welfare as we know it. So I covered the welfare system and the welfare debate in the 1990s. And when the Congress passed the law in 1996 abolishing the old welfare system, I found a group of um, Milwaukee welfare families and followed them for seven years to write about the Mm -hmm. result of of the Clinton um, uh, welfare bill. So um, I'd say most of my, um, the bulk of my coverage was around the welfare system. So talk about today where we are. I, I have thoughts about it because I think about the elite at the very top of society, the people on the bottom and the middle class that's getting sort of crushed in the middle. Tell me about what, from your perspective, what the landscape is now I think in America. Shift, yeah, I think there's been a big shift um, and you used the word earlier, inequality. So mm-hmm. that, you know, 30 years ago, that wouldn't have been the first word you would have talked about. You right. would have talked about poverty. more of yeah, poverty and particularly pockets of poverty. You know, right. The notion was basically that this was a prosperous society that was, for most people the economy was working and for mm-hmm. most people they were right. able to work up. And then there was a subgroup and so the question was why? Is it because of racial discrimination? Is it because of the legacy of um, slavery? Is it because of the failures of the welfare system? You know, what is it about— Is it opiates now, right? Um, <laughs> uh, uh, what is it about a subgroup that's mm-hmm. keeping them from sharing the broader prosperity? I think now there's a sense that 
really the economy is not working for the majority of people. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's working for the very most fortunate. Yeah. But um, so the poor, are th- I think, are seen more as part of a continuum of people who are not participating rather than a separate right. kind of exotic subgroup. Right. Right, as more people get added into it. I want to get back into this book in a second, but in terms of when you say there's a separate subgroup, meaning is a continuum of more people adding to it or a continuum of a different problem we're facing? Yeah, when I first started um, writing uh, 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 about poverty in America, the, the notion was the economic system was working for most of us, but there was something about poor people that it wasn't working for. Now I think the the generally accepted idea is that the economy isn't working for the general middle class mm-hmm. and the poor people are... are um, the worst off, but lots of other people are one misfortune away exactly. from falling into their midst. So mm-hmm. um, I don't think it's seen as a separate population the way it used to. And if you had to, I don't want you to place blame because it's such a complex topic, but what do you think the, the, mm. the secular trends have been to create that? Or was it just that was the case ongoing? I think it's a function of, gl- of rising inequality globally, and so mm-hmm. is migration. You know, the reason migration is on the rise is because inequality between rich countries— and, or a, a big reason it's on the rise is because the inequality between rich countries and poor countries is growing. I mean, obviously the U.S. has always been much more prosperous than the Philippines, but the multiple, if you go back to 1960, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, say it was five—say incomes were five times what they were in the Philippines then, you know, now they're 30 times. It's that kind of magnitude. Right, that, right. That's grown, and we're seeing that in our own society. Right, absolutely. And it's creating these tensions because— people are coming here. I mean, it's, I think it. I think the inequality starts in the marketplace, but the political system hasn't done anything to ameliorate it, and right. perhaps most likely has been, public policy has been exacerbating it. Mm-hmm. Because? The tax system. I mean, just look at the, who, who ben, the, the biggest domestic achievement of the Trump administration is the tax bill. Who's benefited from the tax bill? I mean, the bulk of the uh, it's a, a, a huge redistribution of wealth upwards. Right, absolutely. We're here with Jason DeParle. He's written a book, which we're going to talk about in a minute. He's going to read from it, um, called A Good Provider is One Who Leaves, A Family and Migration in the 21st Century. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. 
We're here with Jason DeParle. His new book is called A Good Provider is One Who Leaves, One Family and Migration in the 21st Century. Sketch out what the book is about, and then I want you to read a part from it. It's about three generations of one extended family and how Mm -hmm. their journey embodies the broader rise of global migration. Mm -hmm. So in the first generation, it's a a man named Emmett goes abroad to Saudi Arabia. He can make 10 times his wage by being Mm -hmm. cleaning pools in Saudi Arabia as opposed to Manila. In Manila, he made $50 a month. In Saudi, he made $500 a month. That Mm -hmm. meant he could get his daughter medicine and put a patch of the leaky roof on his shanty and eventually send his daughter, Rosalie, to nursing school, which is a big leap for a girl from the slums. She made it. Um, I thought when she was going to nursing school, the whole point was that she would then stay in the Philippines. But instead, she went to Saudi Arabia and she went to um, uh, the Persian Gulf. At, at the time, I thought, poor Rosalie, she has to go abroad. From her perspective, it was, hey, lucky me, I get to go abroad because mm-hmm. the salaries were so much better over there. Um, and she set her sights on the U.S. She took her 20 years to get here. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes the um, critics of immigration say it's gotten too easy to come. Mm-hmm. People don't really want to come anymore. Well, she struggled for 20 years to make it and finally got her big break in 2012 after um, a few years after a hurricane had hit Galveston, Texas, and destroyed the local hospital. Um, it's like a Katrina event. A sixth mm-hmm. of the island never came back. So Galveston's a struggling blue-collar community on the Texas Gulf Coast can't get enough American nurses to come back and rebuild the hospitals, offering $5,000 bonuses. They wouldn't come. So it finally took a gamble and hired 20 foreign nurses to come in and open a new ward. Mm-hmm. Rosalie had her chance. She came in 2012 with her husband and their three young children. So the book is the three generations, her father's experiences in the Persian Gulf, hers in the Persian Gulf in America, and then her young children going into the Texas public schools speaking As little English. Americans. They were well. They were five, seven, and nine when mm-hmm. they came. So okay. they became. Uh, they weren't Americans when they arrived. They mm-hmm. were um, the the youngest one didn't speak a word of English. But uh, yeah, a lot of the book is about how rapidly and uh, uh, they became even and, and even when it um, made Rosalie uncomfortable. I mean, she at one point said, "We're only going to speak Tagalog uh, mm-hmm. in the house." This because, is the language. Just Filipino, explain her, yeah, Fili- Filipino, because you know, it's so important. You remember to you, you know your, your language. And that lasted like two minutes. I mean, the kids, American culture is coming in the radio, it's coming in the TV, it's coming in the car, it's coming on their phones. They, um, within three years, they forgot how to speak to Gallic. They, they went back to see their grandparents. They couldn't speak to Gallic anymore. Right. All right. So read from the book. Oh, well, um, the passage I, uh, I thought about reading is at the end. So Rosalie is in the U.S. for three years and, mm-hmm. um, when she buys a house in the suburbs, which mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the ultimate badge of belonging, the classic immigration story. Where, sure. So three generations it took to do that. The first generation struggled amid poverty, and the second generation awkwardly straddled two cultures, and the third generation made it. Going to make it, yeah. right, yeah. So she achieved in three generations um, what used to—three years, what used to take three generations. And a few weeks after she closed on the House, Donald Trump announced that he was running for president with a speech denouncing immigrants. Yes, indeed. Um Rosalie said little about Trump. I cannot judge what's in his heart, but her life was an eloquent retort to the case he made. She didn't take from Galveston. She gave to it. She was a nurse, not a snake. In standard cost-benefit terms, Rosalie's experience was a triple win. Good for her, good for America, and good for the family in the Philippines. But cost-benefit analysis alone is, um, doesn't do the story justice. Rosalie's escape from the slums is a minor miracle. Migration was her vehicle of salvation. It delivered her from the living conditions of the 19th century. It respected her talent, rewarded her sweat, and enlarged her capacity for giving. It made her life deeper, fuller, and more filled with hope. 
It's great that migration helped her help others, but it's also great that it helped her help herself. That her quest ended in Texas is something for Americans to cheer. It's good for your country to be the place where people go to make dreams come true. When I asked Rosalie how the house compared with the hovel where we met, with the leaks, rat, heat, crowd, and stench, she couldn't find the words. I couldn't either. Oh my God, she told the kids, big difference. Mommy didn't have it like this. Mommy grew up in a shanty. Christine looked up. What's a shanty, Mommy? <laughs> That's great. Um, so one of the things that you zero in on is this idea, this arguments around immigration now, of telling the actual stories of what happens versus these sort of cartoonish, racist tropes that we that Trump engages in almost continually. Um, and is just today, for example, the, they're cutting back uh, migration here by half. It's now, what, what is it? Refugees. Refugees. Yeah, it's it's now, down 82% from 82%, the Obama. but yes. I think they cut it again in yes, half. Right. Um, talk about where we are. Here you have a success story of which there are dozens and dozens, more than dozens, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people, that this is the way it is. If you are if you work in tech, you know that. It's very clear that, that, that tech would not exist without immigration and migration here to this country. Most of the top executives at most of the tech companies, you know, every, you, you just, Elon Musk, an immigrant, Sergey Brin, an immigrant, Satya Nadella, an immigrant, Sundar Pichai, these are all the top leaders. Uh, and, and then if you go down one layer, it's the same thing. If you go down another layer, it's the same thing. Why do these tropes continue, even though there's success stories at a nurse, which is like everyone's different, versus, you know, I think all these people are innovative in some way, entrepreneurial. They come and they have these kind of things. What has happened to that narrative of, you come here and you make your way versus you come here and you and you are a burden on society. I think every era of um, mass migration produces an unease. Um, mm-hmm. The arguments that you hear today are really not at, at all different from what you heard in 1910, 1915, 1920 in the mm-hmm. Ellis Island years before um, that led to putting great restrictions on immigration for 40 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I took pains to read – and try to take seriously the anti-immigration or immigration critic literature. Samuel mm-hmm. Huntington, um, there's a writer named Mark Krikorian who wrote a book called The uh, New Case Against Immigration. Um, to not dismiss their concerns, but try to understand them and line them up against Rosalie's life. And it was striking to me just how little the portrait they painted of immigration fixed her life. So Huntington— the great Harvard political scientist, the uh, the eminent intellectual mm-hmm. of the anti-immigration movement, mm-hmm. talks about how immigration has gotten too easy. People can, right. do, can they they don't have to they used to have to get on sailboats and wrench right. their way across the Atlantic, and now right. they can. Rosalie tried for twenty years to come to the U.S. Mm-hmm. She took the test like the English test five times. She took this, the nursing test three times. She waited in line for a visa for seven years, and she waited for a job for. She put her every ounce of being into coming to the U.S. So mm-hmm. quite the opposite. Um, Mark Krikorian um, writes about how immigrants no longer imbibe American patriotism and they don't learn civic heroes. Well, go to public school in Galveston, Texas. They pledge allegiance to the flag twice, mm-hmm. to the U.S. flag and to the Texas flag. Mm-hmm. Rosalie's daughter, Lara, got fascinated with Rosa Parks and came mm-hmm. home and you know retold the Rosa Parks story um, with a Filipino twist that mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't fair for her— to um, uh, be uh, um, have to sit in the back of the bus because she paid the same amount of money, so she mm-hmm. had the like American equality ethos. And then she said, but when she got arrested, she didn't curse, mm-hmm. and she was very impressed with that. It was like the Filipino little girl um, schooled on politeness was taken to that element of the civil mm-hmm. disobedience. So, I mean, quite this third grade, quite um, uh, deeply taking it to heart. So the, right. the idea that 
you know, she knew Rosa Parks. She knew Harriet Tubman. She knew um, Jane Addams. She knew Abraham Lincoln. She knew George Washington. The, the idea that immigrants don't get exposed to American civic patriotic culture, again, it just right. didn't stack up to right. what I saw among a group of immigrants in Texas. So what does that persist now? I mean, I get, I get the idea that this has happened before. Most things were in that zone. This has happened before. We have been McCarthyism. We have been, you know, everything reoccurs from the Salem witch trials to today, essentially. Why now do you imagine this sort of pushback against migration has happened when in, in most cases it does benefit the countries that I think you need to distinguish between politics and public opinion. Mm-hmm. So curiously, during the three decades after the 65 immigration law passed, mm-hmm. immig- public opinion was generally skeptical about immigration, even as the system was growing. Mm-hmm. So political forces were going one way, welcoming immigrants, and public opinion was kind of, mm. Now it's switched. The political backlash among a minority is loud and vociferous, but mm-hmm. public opinion is more in favor of immigration than it's been for 20 years. So— um, what I think has really happened isn't that the American public has turned against immigration. It's that um, a dynamic inside the Republican Party has taken hold to promote an anti-immigrant message. I think that's largely because the immigrant vote is skewing so much Democratic. Mm-hmm. And the Internet sort of empowers you know, um, the anti-establishment message. Um, that's another part of it. I think demography is another part of it, that um, immigrants are now settling in the South where they didn't, didn't used to. Right. That, um, so for a variety of reasons more particular to the Republican Party, the end of the Cold War has played a role. You know, Reagan was actually pro-refugee mm-hmm. because he saw it through an anti-communist lens. He, he, when he accepted the um, nomination for president in 1980, he talked about how the U.S. was a city on the hill because it ref- welcomed refugees. Mm-hmm. You know, the Republican icon, Ronald Reagan, said right. that. So we're in a very different place now. Um, and I think the end of the Cold War um, has been part of that as well. And what do you uh, attribute to how vociferous it's gotten? And maybe it's just because it's fascinating how quickly it's escalated in that in, in a political realm. Is it because- I do think the internet has played a big role in that. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, the internet um, weakens establishments and empowers marginal groups. So mm-hmm. there's there was for thirty forty years there's been a marginalized anti-immigrant message, racialized yeah. message. Right. But it was quite marginal. Right. Um, and They're often some state that we don't visit or whatever. You know what I mean? Someone was saying that to me before the, they used to be able to be quiet in a place. It, well, and the Republican Party was forming around Reaganite orthodoxy that right, right. kept that message. You know, it's not that it wasn't there. It's just that it wasn't mainstream. And I mm-hmm. think um, establishment opinion gatekeepers have lost their power and Twitter has and Breitbart and other – conservative uh, media have given voice to a, what used to be a more marginalized thought. Mm-hmm. And when, when, when you think about the policy that's happening right now around migration, not just here, but across the world, talk a little bit about that. What are the trends right now? Obviously, cutting back on refugees and immigration here, legal and illegal. But what do you see right now as the most critical trend of all those? If you look at the underlying forces that promote migration— you would forecast um, a future of continued high migration. Um, the West needs the workers. The w- workers in poor countries need jobs. Cheap travel speeds the journey. The Internet, cheap communications, instant communications spreads words that opportunities exist. Um, war and conflict has pushed the displaced populations to record highs. So all the structural conditions mm-hmm. would portend, uh, as far as we can generally see, more migration. 
And as you note, um, governments are going the other way. So it raises the question, migration scholars actually debate it, you know, who's really in charge? Do governments really control migration or um, do, or do they control it much, much less than they think? And I don't think we really know the answer to that yet. Right. And this is a, you know, this is look a at global Europe, phenomenon. In, you know, we'll talk are about the, are, Well, are the migrants in charge or the um, – when in 2015 when a million migrants went across the Mediterranean and into Germany – was it the governments of the most powerful governments in in the in the world in charge, or were the people on the boats? It's mm-hmm. a it's it, it's a showdown. We haven't quite come to the you know we haven't resolved that yet. Whether governments have the power to, to stem migration or to what extent they do, right? And especially here, I mean, the arguments over the wall or the not wall they're they're all to me not long term solutions to a bigger problem um, around migration where it's going. We're here talking to Jason DePaul. He's the reporter from the New York Times who often writes about immigration and poverty. His latest book is called A Good Provider is One Who Leaves, One Family and Migration in the 21st Century. We'll be back after this. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. We're here with Jason DeParle. He's a reporter at the New York Times whose book is called A Good Provider is One Who Leaves, One Family and Migration in the 21st Century. He followed the experience of one woman born in the Philippines today, but who's come from a much longer line of, the word migrants is such an unusual word, but who, yeah. who engaged in migration to better their lives, essentially. It's a picture of a, the, the real migration, I think. A lot of people that I've encountered in tech, I think a lot of people in different areas. When does that change, or is this going to be sort of always a feeling of being pushed at, not in just this country, but other countries, as people do migration? Because I don't see the concept of people moving all over the world changing. In fact, I see it accelerating. From Well, again, I think it's important to differentiate between this. There's two narratives going on mm-hmm. in America. There's this kind of ugly public political backlash narrative. Mm-hmm. But at the level of lived experience, I think by and large— Immigration is proceeding pretty well. Right. I mean, Rosalie moved to Houston. When I was growing up, Houston was known for honky-tonks and rodeos. Right. It's now the most ethnically diverse city in the world, deep in red state America, and immigration is very popular in mm-hmm. Houston. Mm-hmm. You know, there's Hindu temples in the, in the suburbs. There's Viet Cajun cuisine. There's a level of diversity and intermarriage and economic cooperation. You, they need— um, they have the engineers in the oil industry. They have doctors and nurses in the famous Texas Medical Center. Um, you, you would look at Houston and say, wow, that's a— Success story. Compared, go back to 1965, and, you know, if you'd imagined that— if I'd told you 50 years ago there were going to be Hindu temples in the Houston suburbs, you right. would have expected, I think, a much greater level of ethnic conflict than you've mm-hmm. had. Not that you haven't had any, but just by and large, because— the expansion of the immigration uh, to the U.S. coincided, I think, with the civil rights movement. It helped incorporate immigrants much more successfully than it would have otherwise. And so you have this kind of like social acceptance and a political backlash. So what is the impact of the political backlash going forward? Because you're going to see if there was, was, you know, a lot of immigration and now we have this— What's happening now, my fear is we don't let the whole 
what has happened is bringing more people in is always better from my perspective in terms of, because you don't know where innovation, is. I, my, I'm focused obviously on innovation and how you bring in ideas and new fresh things. And you can look at uh, one of the concepts I think about a lot is how innovation thrives and what is part of it. One of them is tolerance. One of them is uh, open borders, um, or not open borders, what's the right way to put it? A smart Im- immigration that works, that people feel good about, that more and more people, diversity and things like that. And the trends now are not that way. So what's the impact later from your perspective? Like if you were telling this story. Well, could, let me give you two scenarios. Okay. So, um, you know, the one I fear is that if the people in charge continue to tell immigrants long enough and loudly enough that right. they're not wanted, the immigrants will start to he- listen. Yes. And you'll have an ethnic uh, reaction, a sort mm-hmm. of uh, an ethnic, a level of ethnic alienation like you see in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the downside. Um, the upside uh, or uh, would be, at least from the standpoint of um, a more pro-immigrant point of view, this isn't the first backlash we had. We had one in the 1990s around Prop 187 in mm-hmm. California. Where, Explain that for people. Yeah, so Pete Wilson, the Republican governor running for re-election uh, in a bad economy, seized on a ballot initiative called Prop 187 that would have denied um, uh, the children, undocumented children, the right to go to public school and, and all services. And it passed, right? So in a big moment of anti-immigrant backlash, it passed in California. And then what happened in the aftermath was um, immigrants naturalized and registered to vote in record numbers, and California went deep blue and permanently blue, right? Mm-hmm. That's the last time a Republican won on a statewide election in California. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, if the Republican Party, if the immigrant vote grows um, strong enough, I think the Republican Party will have to moderate its message. Mm-hmm. Do you? Is that true? That happened? Or just they have to lose enough elections and midterms. Oh, it hasn't happened yet, no. Right. And, and, you know, people have been predicting it's going to happen, and it hasn't happened yet. But I, I, I said there's two scenarios. One right. is that um, the— They don't come. They don't come. I think one of the things that a lot of people in tech are worried about or anyone in any kind of forward-thinking industry is that is that exact thing, that fewer people are coming, that fewer people are staying— or feel safe coming. Um, I've, I've right. talked to the, the U.S. in a world of in a global marketplace. That the fact that U.S. is a nation of immigrants should be a great advantage. Of course, right? of course. How much better for us to compete with the China. Chinese or the the whomever? Right. Chinese, you know, right. Well, it used to be you know twenty years ago. Whatever. We, we, the fear was that we were losing out to the Japan. Japan. Right. Um, uh, Mark Krakorian once wrote, um, uh, "Japan got robots. We got Mexicans." And, uh, yeah, that they were innovating. They were on the cusp of yeah. technological innovation, and we were stuck no. with low-skilled immigrants. Well, now um, nobody really wants to model their economy after Japan. Mm-hmm. So America's inclusiveness it could be a, a, an engine of dynamism in the global economy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I fear that to scrub the phrase nation of immigrants, both literally as the government has done from their the immigration agency's mission statement and mm-hmm. more metaphorically from our consciousness would be a big mistake. Right. Yeah, the home. Who is the one that Homeland Security uh, uh, rewrote the poem? Yeah, yeah. They they uh, well they they took um, uh, the phrase "nation of immigrants" out of the mission right. statement of right. the U.S. Right, the Emma Lazarus poem that he yeah. rewrote. I literally wanted to reach to the TV and slap him. I was like, "What are you doing? That's a great poem." Uh, that's a big thing among the anti-immigrant yeah. groups to Talk try about to say that. Why? Well, that the Statue of Liberty. It is historically accurate to say that the Statue of Liberty wasn't initially conceived of as a, a welcome to immigrants. It was meant to, to celebrate freedom. Right. Um, uh, Thanks, France. Yeah. Uh, 
But it quickly became mm-hmm. a symbol of— Because uh, oh, they saw it on the way in. My grandfather came Because migrants saw it coming in. My grandfather came in. But also, Emma Lazarus yeah. wrote her poem mm-hmm. um, about um, Give Me Your Tired, Your Poor, Your Hollow Masses as a fundraiser for the statue. Yeah. So even as it was being built, the right. notion of welcoming immigrants was built into it. Right. Um, and I think it's such a powerful image that— mm-hmm. Uh, immigration critics feel a need to de- defang it somehow. Defang yeah. or de-immigrant it yeah, or something right, like that. Right, so whitewash it. W- let's get back to the book. So w- what, you're, what you're writing about is really a success story. You start off, although— Oh, the greatest a, anti-poverty success story I've ever seen. Right. Uh, but where are all the characters now? Where is Tita still there? Tita's still in the Philippines right. in, a house, uh, in, in a house that Rosalie built her with a private water tower mm-hmm. and three bedrooms and faux marble so, floors, okay. floors and um, living in much better Not physical conditions. And still living uh, in— Oh, in no, 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 no. They, they moved out of the slums and right. built, moved back to her family farm and built a nice house. I mean, that's the upside. The downside is all her children are abroad and she right. misses her grandkids. So uh-huh. it's a mixed— bag from her point of view. You know, right. she's growing old without her kids and her grandkids around mm-hmm. her. And her husband? He died two months ago. Uh-huh. Um, a very sad scene. I went back with Rosalie to visit when he got sick and as she was— He had le- come back from Saudi Arabia. Yes, 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 yes. He was—he um, uh, spent 20 years there but came home and retired and had a stroke and Rosalie went back to see him and as she was leaving to go to the airport, he said, we may never see each other again. And uh-huh. Um, she reassured him that they would and got in the car and we got to start driving to the airport. I thought, uh-oh, this is going to be a bereft moment. You know, I thought Rosa was going to choke up her on the way to the airport. And instead, she turned to me and she said, you know what? I feel like I'm going home to Houston. You right. Know, that, that U.S. had become her home. Right, right. Um, so she's happily settled in the U.S. and the kids are now— um, in high school and flourishing, and one of them's on the honor roll. Two of them are on the, on the honor roll. Um, mm-hmm. They're American kids. They're not going anywhere. So tell me what you, what you're trying to do here. What is the message you want to send with a book like this? Because it was incredibly uplifting, and it's it's how I think of immigration, and I think a lot of people actually do, despite all the political noise. And what has to be done to get us back to that? Because a lot of people in where I'm from, they focus on HB1 visas and only qualified people. And my argument is you don't know who's going to be qualified. Oh, thank you for saying that. Honestly. Because if you looked around the slum when Rosalie was growing up, when I first mm-hmm. met her, when she was a 15-year-old girl, you wouldn't have picked her as being the one who was going to have the drive to right. get out. Right. She wasn't the smartest. She wasn't the most outgoing. She just had some invisible tenacity that somehow carried her through nursing school in Saudi Arabia and eight years in Abu Dhabi and just kept going. She just kept going. So mm-hmm. you're exactly right. If you you can't quantify what, what she had, um, mm-hmm. you don't know who's got that uh, right. um, so-called merit. Well, or else you don't even know where the idea comes from. But, but, you know, I, you, I always you, use that example. It's like there's a girl in Syria I know has the has a technological mind for climate change. I don't know. And we're going to leave her there, like not bring her here, and you know, become the world's first trillionaire. Like I, I would like you can't imagine where people come from. You asked why I wrote it. It wasn't really to deliver a, a statement about migration. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. a, a reporter has a view of a subject yeah. migration, goes out and finds a migrant family, and you know, sort of feels. It was just that I was initially drawn to just the character and mm-hmm. faith and resolve and resilience and general decency of this family. Um, I wanted to honor their journey out of poverty, and it happened to take the form of migration. So on a bigger scale, how do how does our country grapple with 
poverty right now? How do you imagine? <laughs> Not very well. Not very well. But what do we have to do? What is critically important from if you were running the country or what would you think are the most important things? There's all kinds of ideas around UBI. There's ideas around there's, – there's a zillion ideas that I hear about. But what from your perspective of covering this for so long, how does – and how do the really wealthy besides – Stop taking the money, like which they love to do, because nothing poor people like is rich people like is more money. Um, but what has to happen in our country to rise up that group and do what we're what the narrative of the United States is, which is that anybody can do anything. Which well, is boy, I, I wish I wish I had the full answer, but um, the <laughs> you know the partial answer is um, I hope that that poor people can become more politically um, organized and have more of a voice because. You know, I think polit- even well-intentioned politicians, in the end, um, listen to their friends, listen to listen to people who are giving them money. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're kind of invisible in the political process. They mm-hmm. really are. Well, that happened. I mean, even when the Democrats were in power, right? They didn't do anything about the um, carried interest. Uh, right. Uh, so right earned it. Yeah. Um, the Democrats are complicit in 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 one hundred percent. But but look at look at I remember what was uh, Cory Aquino was people power right the mm-hmm. idea of it and it sort of look what we have in the Philippines right now a very different leadership. Um, and we have a government in the United States that is uh, adept at using cultural issues to divide to disguise poor people's economic interests. So right, I exactly. hope the politics could. Um, I don't know how you rebuild unions or rebuild union political power or find a find a working class uh, political voice, but I hope mm-hmm. that can happen. And in terms of what we have to do from our migration policies or migration policies globally, you had the difficulty of getting here for this family, but ultimately one of them broke through and has a successful life in the United States. What has to happen from a global point of view for migration? Because to me, migration is critical to being, people being able to move around the world uh, in a in a global fashion is very well, as important. you as you were saying earlier. Uh, I think the thing that I worry most about is is keep not the numbers. I can't tell you whether eight hundred thousand or nine hundred thousand or one point one million immigrants is the, is the right number. What I think is crucial though is making keeping the country a, a welcoming place that attracts the that attracts the Rosalies or the girl mm-hmm. in Syria that attracts the 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 people who want to be here and. Um, whether you would describe them as the best or the brightest or the most willing or the most tenacious. And I think we also have to um, uh, certainly have to legalize the DACA kids. I mean, that's oh, just, my God. That just, that, yeah, that's something want. actually people in Silicon Lorraine Powell jobs. There's a bunch of people right. pushing for that. That to me is the lowest hanging fruit of all time. You, you would think, but I've it's been so many the first bill was 2001. Yep. What's the problem now, right? 2001, yeah. What, what do you, from your perspective, it's just that it's caught in this political. Yeah, it's the, the, I mean, the people who, Republicans who were once for it now want something in exchange for it. So right, they're just, exactly. they're just they hostages. What's going to happen to the DACA kids? These are kids, the dreamers. These are these amazing kids. Beats for me. anyone who's met them, they're just an astonishing group of well, people and, that you would be, you're, you would be honored to and, have. And wildly popular with the American public, mm-hmm. but, um, uh, yeah, it's in the courts. Trump um, eliminated the, the DACA protections, and so it's mm-hmm. up to up From to your Supreme perspective Court. of covering this, what do you imagine is going to happen? I don't know. I really don't know. Um, yeah, it, it, one one is um, reluctant to put um, your hopes in the hands of the Supreme Court at the moment. <laughs> All right, so your last thing, what are, what are you writing about next? What is your—you've done this 30 years, now it's done. 
Yeah, I'm in that what weird weird do? transition period of uh, back, what are the back key to the issues world of poverty that you and migration you want to work on. Inequality. Inequality. And and child poverty. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it's just uh, the the US has the highest rates of child poverty in in the uh, rich world and we it, it, it it's a feature of American landscape so familiar we've stopped seeing it. Mhm. And and we just passed a child tax uh, – the Trump administration passed a huge expansion of the child tax credit, and um, it's skewed towards upper-income kids. Mm-hmm. So it's – we're taking a problem and making it worse. And, and, um, and any of the ideas that the Democratic candidates have, like UBI, all kinds of things, how do you look at those? Um Inequality has risen to the level where it's just replicating itself. So education, which used to be the place where you would – was supposed to be the place right. where you would fight class. You know, everybody got a fresh start. That's you right. Fight. You know, it was never really oh, that no, good case. But there was always some element where the and, uh, um, where where the class inheritance wouldn't matter so much. And now mm-hmm. it's become a system that just reinforces class advantages. A hundred percent. We've oh. completely left – these people down on Im- and education and, and at the under first. the name of meritocracy. Right. So, I mean, right. I mean, the other part of the problem is that the winners don't know that the game is stacked in their favor. That's another problem. They know, <laughs> Jason. They know. <laughs> Trust me, I know them. They know. They don't care. That's a very different thing. So I, I always use the old hmm. um, uh, Martin Luther King you're, quote. You're right in part, but. Um, I don't think they fully realize because I think if you go to the right schools, they work hard and you sort of look back at your life and you think, I made it. I earned my way. I should. Yeah. I didn't. My, oh, sure. My, I had a good SAT and went yeah. to the right school. Yeah. yeah, the born on third base and thinking. Yeah, no, home that's a big, yeah. that's just such a dynamic in American life in it a way is. that I don't think it was as prominent when I first came on the beat 30 years ago. Interesting. That's an interesting question. I always use the quote, um, the Martin Luther King quote, which is one of my favorites is, I think it's Martin Luther King. I'm pretty sure it is. Um, People that say pull yourself by, up by your own bootstraps forget that a lot of people don't have shoes, which mm-hmm. I'm, I'm always – it's interesting. And the second part is with having to do with immigration. When I talk about stories like this, that there, there are so many uh, immigration stories that are so successful and so uh, job creation, all kinds of things, and you get a pushback on immigration, I, I'm often like, what – when did an immigrant do anything to you that was negative? Like, I can't even, you know, it's it's the same thing around homelessness or something like that. It's a rare— Oh, I made a real point in the hospital of asking mm-hmm. Rosalie's patients mm-hmm. what they thought about— when she wasn't in the room, what they right. thought about foreign nurses coming in, were they taking American jobs? And not one had any concerned about it. Mm-hmm. If you're sick and you're in the hospital, yes. you care about you don't care about somebody's ethnicity, you care about their care. Right. Well. And Rosalie provided great care. In the, on that note, please read Jason DeParle's book. He's a New York Times reporter who writes about immigration and poverty. His book is called A Good Provider is One Who Leaves, One Family and Migration in the 21st Century. Uh, good luck to Rosalie and her family. I hope they continue to thrive. Thank you, Kara. Uh, anyway, thank you, Jason, for coming on the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Erica Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Jason, where can people find you and your lovely book online? JasonDeParle.com. And the book is available everywhere. Go to Amazon. Buy it from the world's richest man. Anyway, who should give away all his money. Anyway, if you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice or tap the link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Rabe. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. 
Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.